This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. We're going to take you to the bank right now with Arnold Kukuda. He is our banking and credit analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins me here in our 1130 studios. Also with us, we have Marty Mosby. He is the director of bank and equity strategies at Vining. They are based in Memphis, Tennessee. The topic banks because J.P. Morgan Chase, as well as Wells Fargo and Citigroup, all reporting results today beginning the bank earnings season. Marty Mosby, want to get your thoughts on today's moves. Why do you believe all the bank stocks are lower? Well, I mean, we're rounding lower. But really what you have is there's still these fear factors of this yield curve. Deposit betas are going up, so funding costs are going higher. So there's still things that if you want to, you know, kind of round out and kind of push the banks out of your portfolio, there's things to focus on. However, what you should really see is that the asset yields are outpacing uh, the increase in funding costs, which is creating expansion and net interest margin. Loan growth is picking up, and we just got the announcements just two weeks ago that we'll put these banks back into the market buying their own shares. They've been out of the market for over a month now. So there's a natural buyer that's about to come right back into uh, to this space. Arnold Kakuda, do you agree with Marty's assessment? Yeah, I mean, uh, as as a credit guy, you know, I'm, I'm looking kind of more holistically, and I'm saying, you know, the, the three big guys they reported net income of 17 billion, with uh, almost half of that coming from uh, J.P. Morgan. So these guys are looking pretty healthy right now, and I, and I think you know, kind of the market's been concerned about these trade wars, and and kind of you know, there, there are little things always that you can nitpick about about each of the banks, and I think that's where we're kind of getting stuck right now. Well, Arnold, let me just put it to you, though, that if the banks have to pay interest on deposits, low-cost deposits, admittedly, and they're not able to necessarily increase the cost of loans or even increase the number of loans that they're putting out there, doesn't this spell some kind of trouble for the way banks' business model works? I mean, I guess, you know, people are concerned about the flatter yield curve and stuff, but, you know, it's been flattening, um, yet, you know, net, net interest income has been growing, and, uh, you know, even NIMS as well. So, but but more holistically, um, you know, these banks, the um, you're really looking at the credit quality, I guess, is what, you know, I focus more on, and things are looking pretty decent, right, and uh, for the most part, and, uh, you know, in credit cards, we're still seeing things tick up a little bit, but, you know, it's kind of within the range of you know risk expectations that you know the um, um, you know analysts have, and uh, you know even even Wells Fargo, you know people are concerned about kind of the uh, balance sheet growth and stuff. But you know it's 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 really they're, they're selling off a lot of more. Uh, sorry, they're, they're winding down some of these uh, more riskier portfolios and stuff like that. So you know in terms of you know the, the risk um, out there, you know I'm seeing banks being cautious. You know even though they they are increasing their loans and stuff, but they're being cautious about it too. Marty Mosby. So if you don't mind, go ahead. And I jump in on that particular issue because Please. that is the biggest misconception that investors are having to struggle with. Let's say that loan and deposit yields basically just offset each other. Okay, we're forgetting about another big piece of the of the balance sheet. Investment securities are literally the portfolios because they were all originated and bought at the trough of this interest rate environment. 
are 100 basis points behind the current yields in the market today. Forget about the Fed tightening one more basis point or the yield curve going up at all. Given where rates are today, banks can improve their returns, and we saw that today. You saw 10 and 15 basis point improvements in security yields. Those are all funded by not interest-bearing, non-interest-bearing DDAs and equity that have no price elasticity whatsoever. So all of that is this cream, and that's why the margins are continuing to expand, even though we are getting some pricing pressure within the business side, loans and deposits. That security portfolio is a very valuable tool at this point to create uh, further earnings growth. Well, Marty, then why have investors not picked up on this? Because if you go back and look at the performance of many of these stocks, particularly even J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo has got its own story, but J.P. Morgan, yes. Citigroup, and you go back, let's say, January, February, you know, you look at the chart, you go lower lows and lower highs, pretty consistent. Exactly. Uh, we predicted that back in January because you had three things coming out. Seasonality and the first quarter earnings in April are always bad for the banks, and everybody forgets about that. So you don't look like you have any sequential growth. Uh, well, I think we uh, – I mean, This starts ahead, freaking everybody out. Yeah, so the yield curve basically begins to flatten that out, and that's what creates that. Now what we're seeing is the backside of that, which is those fundamentals begin to, to improve, and you begin to see you know, any relief in the back end of this curve, and the banks will start to perform well again. Marty, let's talk specifics. Uh, Citigroup, do you uh, do you like buying shares of Citigroup here? So each of these has their own little personality. Uh, but in general, yes, all the banks at this point uh, we think have upside in between, let's say, 12% and 20%. Uh, a few of them, the super regional banks, can be 25 to 30%. But when you start looking at Citigroup, Citigroup is sitting there with you know their price close to tangible book value. Uh, they're producing returns and sustaining those returns above their cost of equity. They're buying back their shares, which will generate a 12% free cash flow. So all you need to see to the group is keep buying back those shares. Their returns go up another half to a full percentage point, and it's going to be a, a really good producer, double digits, easily over the next year. Marty, give you about 10 seconds here. Investment banks, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley next week. Well, what we saw uh, is that investment banking was much better. So that is good, especially for Morgan Stanley. Uh, so we would look at that one as uh, one you could roll into, given what we're seeing in the results today. All right. want to thank you both very much. Marty Mosby is Director of Bank and Equity Strategies at Avining Sparks, based in Memphis. My thanks also to Arnold Kakuda, our Banking and Credit Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Will the U.S. Justice Department stop what has already started, which is the acquisition of Time Warner by AT&T? Let's bring in Craig Moffitt. He is senior analyst at Moffitt and Nathanson to tell us more. He's also the founder of Moffitt Nathanson, and you can follow them on Twitter at Moffitt Nathanson. Craig Moffitt, are you surprised by this move of the Justice Department? Hi, Pam. Yeah, I am, because, you know, look, Judge Leon, in his decision, went so far as to say, don't bother to appeal this case because you're not going to win. It's, it's a very rare um, to have a judge as definitive as Judge Leon was in this case uh, and still see an appeal by the Justice Department. So um, I think, yes, it's, it's surprising all the way around. 
Okay, so is this surprising if you believe in, let's say, conspiracy theories and you want to focus on Comcast, Walt Disney, and the bidding war for 21st century Fox assets? Well, it's, it, it certainly um, does affect that deal. I, I'm not going to uh, speculate about whether there was any intention there, but, um, but it, it, it very clearly makes it hard for Comcast to proceed, at least with respect to Fox. L- less less impl- implications for their interest in Sky over in Europe. But for Explain Fox, to people why that's so. Well, the the board at Fox, and particularly the Murdochs personally, have very clearly preferred the idea of a Disney deal, not least because it would be much more tax-efficient to take stock rather than cash. Comcast is offering stock, uh, or is, is offering cash, and, and Disney is offering stock, but also because um, the Murdochs would like to continue in the business um, and have a meaningful ownership of a combined entity, in this case, uh, of Fox Disney. So so it's been pretty obvious all along that the board has been looking for air cover um in in preferring in in selecting the bid that they prefer anyway, which is the Disney bid. This this ruling from or this decision by the DOJ to proceed with a an appeal of the uh, of the AT&T case makes it very easy now for Fox to say that the antitrust issues for a Comcast deal are just too risky to take and will stick with Disney. And again, that's that seems to be what they wanted anyway. This just gives them air cover for making the decision they wanted to make. What is the likelihood that Comcast is able to prevail in its bid for just the Sky Broadcasting assets of Fox? That seems to be much more just a question of price, and uh, and so it's hard to say. Look, I, I think you've seen Comcast shares start to trade up perversely because the market is is assuming at least they're going to lose Fox, and the market pretty clearly wants them to lose both. Um, it, it's it's just it's awfully hard to say. Uh, remember, it, assuming that Disney does get the domestic U.S. piece and and the other assets at at Fox then they will also be owners of a very large minority interest in Sky. Um, and so Comcast would be the majority owner, but you would have this awkward relationship where Disney would be your largest shareholder, and uh, and that's probably not ideal. If Disney wants this asset, they can probably buy it, um, and it would allow them to consolidate it. It would be more creative that way. Um, so the question is just – does either company want to keep going for a valuation that has already gone well beyond what most would say is a reasonable valuation for Sky? All right. So if that reasonable valuation is now not reasonable, uh, how are they going to make it work? Uh, it's a great question. Look, I, 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 we've been quite negative about the idea of Comcast buying Sky. And let's let's go back to first principles. What I think Comcast is trying to do, and, and presumably Disney as well, in in buying Sky and Fox is to try to replicate something like Netflix. Sky has a lot of proprietary programming licenses, not least of which are HBO, Showtime, Disney itself, uh, and um, and the Premier League uh, soccer in Western Europe. 
but most of those are transitory. They're, they're, we know Disney's going to, to eventually go direct to consumer, so those rights w- will be lost. HBO is going to go direct to consumer under AT&T, so those rights will eventually be lost. Showtime's going to go direct to consumer, and even the Premier League is likely to be up for bid by people like, uh, like Facebook. So, the real risk here is you buy Sky, and now you don't have the Fox studio to help ramp production of originals to replace all this licensed content. And what you're left with is just a satellite business in Europe. And uh, we've seen from DirecTV and, uh, and Dish Network here in the U.S. just how ugly a future that can be. So that's the real challenge for Comcast especially is – okay, you got what you wanted, but now what do you do with a company that you can pretend it's not a satellite company, but it's a satellite company, and it's an obsolescent technology platform, and you're going to have to transition it pretty quickly to proprietary content, or a lot of those subscribers are going to be at risk. Thanks very much for being with us. Craig Moffat, always a pleasure. Founder, senior analyst for Moffat Nathanson. Go ahead and follow them on Twitter, at Moffat Nathanson. Shares of Disney today higher by 1.5%. Well, to take your place in the Tesla driver's seat in China, you may actually be getting an automobile that is made in China. Tesla recently describing that they are going to open a plant in China, in Shanghai, that would be able to produce about a half a million vehicles a year. And here to tell us more about the company's plants is none other than Tom Randall, a senior reporter for Bloomberg. And you can follow Tom on Twitter at T.S. Randall. Okay, T.S. Randall, is this time going to be a charm for tesla are they really going to build this plant hey we we will see uh you know they've been talking about building a plant in china for a long time now and uh it sounds like uh, you know from what elon is saying that that now now it's really going to happen they're talking about five hundred thousand cars a year which would you know more than double their production uh globally um you know the big question of course right now is how much is this going to cost and where is that money going to come from well do we know either of those two <laughs> things? I mean, there are estimates that, you know, you want to build one of these factories, you're gonna, it's going to be yeah. $1 to $2 billion. Yeah. And last time I checked, Tesla is not producing a lot of cash. Well, I mean, that, that may be changing right now because, uh, you know, at the end of June, Tesla hit, finally hit its goal of producing 5,000 Model 3s in, in a single week, um, that bringing their total to 7,000 cars in one week. And that's, that's a lot of cars. I mean, that's roughly the equivalent of what Ford does in its, in its iconic Dearborn plant. You know, the question is, is can they be, do that sustainably over time? And, um, you know, I interviewed Elon for for uh, this Bloomberg Business Week cover story, and uh, he said that he he said that this week um, he would also be producing five thousand cars a week. They took some time off on the J- July Fourth holiday, but he said that this week that they would be producing five thousand. And he said by next month that it was going to be a little bit more uh, sustainable, and by three months from now that it was going to be just like making a, a Model X or a Model S, the um, their other two cars. So you know, once the, he's al- he's always said that once they hit that five thousand cars a week mark with the Model Three, then then they're you know coming up for air again. They're going to be profitable, and they're going to have a bunch of cash coming in. So we'll see. I mean, they also have uh, some debt coming due uh, early next year. Um, and so it's it's going to be a big question. They, they're certainly going to have to do something to come up with that money. Tell us more about your interview with Elon Musk. 
Sure. I think, um, you know, it was, it was really interesting for the for the Business Week cover. You know, if you've been first of all, where where did this take place? Maybe just give us some color. It, well, OK, so it happened by phone. We were originally going to do it in person um, and then uh, circumstances intervened. And so we did it by phone on Sunday night. And this was uh, what he took a break from building his his kid sized submarine to help in Thailand. They were testing it at the time. I think they shipped it out a couple hours after an interview and he was preparing for his uh, his Shanghai trip um, at, at that time. So, you know, we, we talked in the evening and it was a it was a wide ranging interview. Um, and, you know, he was really thinking back about this last year in in what he calls production hell. You know, if you've been watching Tesla at all, they've been, they've had a really hard year, um, trying to trying to go from one hundred thousand. What did he say? Well, he said he said that he had um, bet the company on the Model Three, and he was um, that you know he the stakes were really high for this car. He said that this was the third time that he's ever had to bet the company on a new product. The, the Roadster, their first car, the Model S, um, uh, which they increased production dramatically from the Roadster to the Model S. He said he did not bet the company on the Model X, their SUV, said they could have de- dealt with failure on that one. Uh, and he said the Model 3. And he said, you know, after the Model 3, he's never going to have to bet the company again. Um, you know, that he, they're never going to have, he said, to get to, to become a mass manufacturer like that, he didn't see any other way that you could do that without betting the company. You know, to go from 100,000 cars to 500,000 cars, you know, which is what he's shooting for originally this year, over the course of one year, it's just an, an incredible amount of money that has to be raised, of, of risk that needs to be taken. And uh, so he says that this is the last time he's going to have to do it. And, and he was very positive about the year that's to come. And that's not always been the case, by the way. He's not a person to gloss over when he's he, – he, he suffers his pain in public. And, uh, you know, I, I think over the, the past year, he's been very honest about – he said he slept on the floor. He said he hadn't changed his clothes in five days when they were doing their final push for production. Um, but he said that he thinks that they are finally turning the corner. He said he's got – you know, he's been in production hell. He's got one foot out of hell now, and he thinks he'll be able to pull the other one out in another three months. And um, – yeah, he he seemed very optimistic about where about the 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 road ahead. Did he reflect at all on how he has personally changed because of having gone through all this? Oh yeah, I mean he, you know I. I interviewed 20, um, uh, 20 of the top engineers for, for um, Tesla as part of this Business Week cover story. And, you know, I, what I came across is, is I think there were two decisions that he made that would kind of collectively caused – led to a number of their problems. And both of them had to do with really empowering their design engineers. And and this is – it's a double-edged sword. It's It's what makes Tesla great and it's what – has caused a lot of their problems in that, you know, if you if you look at some of the design decisions with the car itself, you know, they, they reinvented how an air conditioner worked for this car. It's completely different. They took, you know, a normal HVAC system has 12 different parts with hoses connecting them, and he, uh, he combined them all into, like, one, they call it the super bottle, and uh, one big piece of molded plastic, and there's no vent holes in the front. It's, like, one long opening on, across the front of the car, and it, it's a pleasurable experience. As a driver, it saved Tesla money in production because you've got this one part. Probably saves a lot in in terms of uh, upkeep too. If you ever have to replace that, but but really, if you're a company that's trying to become a mass manufacturer for the first time, you really need to be in reinventing the air conditioner at the same time that you're you know building a car. And they did the same thing with automation. You know these these are the, some of the smartest minds at Tesla that he decided to put on the on to building the machines that build the machine is how he puts it. And 
they were just way over ambitious. You know, they they automated too much. They automated things that it turns out can't or shouldn't be automated, and that's led to a lot of their problems. Thanks very much for being with us. Fascinating cover story. Tom Randall, senior reporter, Bloomberg News. Follow him at T.S. Randall on Twitter and check out his cover story on Elon Musk and Tesla. The shares up 2% this year. This is Bloomberg. And that's why everybody wants a piece of the action. Well, a lot of investors want a piece of the action when it comes to initial public offerings. And here to tell us more about them is Jeff Thomas. He is vice president and head of Western Region Listings for NASDAQ, joining us from our Bloomberg 960 studios in San Francisco. Jeff, thanks very much for being with us. Maybe just give us a step back for a second and describe the landscape for initial public offerings so far in 2018. Sure, Pim. We've had an extremely busy 2018. In the first half, we welcomed 93 IPOs to NASDAQ. That's a 69% increase over the same period last year. And those companies raised a total of $15 billion, which is almost double the proceeds raised in the same period last year. Why do you believe that this is happening? Because the market itself has not performed that well when you look at the major indices, although I guess you could say small and mid-cap stocks have done well. But uh, NASDAQ up 13 percent, though the S&P 500 is uh, up less than 5 percent. Well, I think there's a big backlog, especially of technology companies that have raised a lot of private capital over the past few years, where the investors are now looking for liquidity through an IPO. We've also had relatively low volatility after a little bit of a jolt in February. And so well-performing markets, low volatility, investors seeking liquidity, all makes for a good IPO market. Maybe we could just look at some as examples and you can describe a little bit about why you believe that these are the kinds of companies that perhaps may even... uh sort of give you a little bit of a window into what's going to happen in the future. For example, you had Dropbox, you had Green Sky, DocuSign, PluralSight. Those are just a couple of the, uh, the IPOs that uh, took place on the NASDAQ this year. That's right. We've seen a really strong performance by a number of enterprise software companies that have recurring revenue models. They have a very predictable revenue base that investors like. So companies like Dropbox and DocuSign Uh, performed very well and we think sets the stage for a busy fall, especially for enterprise software deals. What about in the field of biotechnology? Uh, I think, for example, of uh, Rubius uh, as one company that uh, went public uh, this year. Or uh, actually, I beg your pardon, it's a pending listing uh, this year. Are you uh, seeing that they're going to have more uh, biotechnology uh, IPOs? Absolutely. We saw 39 healthcare IPOs in the first half of the year. They raised $3.4 billion in proceeds. And so investors sure show a, a strong appetite uh, for healthcare and especially biotech names. What do you make of the, uh, the notion that uh, private equity and uh, privately held companies are more likely to do deals within the private market versus the public market because they can't get the prices that they want? Do you find that that is a, an exaggeration? There's still a huge amount of capital in the private markets. On NASDAQ private market, where we help companies before they go public provide liquidity, we've already done as many private tender offers in the first half of 18 as we did in all of 2017. So a very strong performance on that front as well. Do you believe that that is a reflection that they are then going to go public, or is it just that the liquidity is not so much an issue for them right now? Well, I think the number one reason companies will do a transaction through NASDAQ private market is to retain their talent by providing some interim liquidity on the way to an IPO or an acquisition. 
uh, especially here in the Valley, it's extremely competitive for talent. And so ensuring their employees have the ability to realize the value they're creating through their equity, it's important on that long march to an IPO. So in other words, they can make some money and you can actually retain the the, uh, the employees. That's right. And maybe even afford a house out here in the Bay Area, which is getting harder and harder. Seemingly, yeah. I think housing prices certainly reflect the uh, the boom in the technology uh, economy. I wonder if you could just speak a little bit about the competition for initial public offerings in a world where maybe you know a lot of investors don't really care where the company is listed because you know, you're going to get best execution whether you're on NASDAQ or on the New York Stock Exchange. Yeah, it's extremely competitive in terms of our uh, competition for new listings. We were proud to win 69% of the IPOs in the first half of 2018. And as you mentioned, based on how uh, resilient and interconnected the markets are now, it's generally less about how your stock is going to trade. It's more about what else uh, we as NASDAQ can do for our listed companies, whether it's helping them with their investor relations programs, uh, doing co-branded marketing with them, or having opportunities for them to join NASDAQ indices like the NASDAQ Biotech Index. Give an example. I know there's one pending. I like it, which is, uh, I mean, I'm, I like the, the industry, so I'm interested in it, which happens to be Sonos. This is the, the wireless uh, audio company. Yeah, Sonos is an exciting IPO. We've got them uh, coming up here in a few weeks. Another exciting one coming up in a couple weeks is Tenable uh, Security. So we continue to see strong performance out of the the different tech sectors. And uh, while I think we'll see a little bit of a slowdown in the back half of August, we have a number of companies who are ready to to gear up post-Labor Day. Tell people just in 30 seconds about Tenable. I believe it's what? Cloud-based security for uh, finance, healthcare, retail, energy, and education. That's right. And if you look at uh, some of the top performing IPOs uh, over the past six to 12 months have been uh, security companies like Tenable, Zscaler, Carbon Black, uh, Forescout. So we've had some really impressive uh, security debuts on the NASDAQ. And with the increasing threats uh, of cybersecurity, it's a topic that's on the minds of all corporate executives as well as their board of directors. I want to thank you very much for spending time with us. Uh, Jeff Thomas is the vice president and the head of Western Region Listings for NASDAQ, joining us from our Bloomberg 960 studios in San Francisco. And uh, Tenable Holdings, they've got a pending listing. They're based in Columbia, Maryland. And uh, Sonos, uh, of course, uh, a pending listing as well, based in uh, Santa Barbara, California. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. To help us with the drive to the close, Jim Russell, principal and portfolio manager for Ball and Gainer, helping to manage over $23 billion of customer assets based in Cincinnati. Jim Russell, a pleasure. Maybe just give us your preview of second quarter earnings results in as much as we've already received those from J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, and Citigroup. What do you expect? Yeah, hi, Pam. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, you know, we expect a, a strong top-line type of result for most companies as we move through the earnings season in 2Q, strong margins, probably more commentary from company managements on capital return. Call that share repurchase, dividends, 
uh, maybe some deleveraging, maybe some M&A announcements uh, along the way as well. Of course, we do expect strong earnings, S&P earnings uh, up 20 percent, perhaps a little bit more uh, on a year-over-year basis. I think importantly in 2Q um, commentary, Pim, uh, maybe even more important than the numbers this time will be possible comments on supply chain disruptions and impact from uh, the trade tensions that exist between the United States and Europe and, of course, the United States uh, and uh, Mexico and Canada and, of course, importantly, uh, China as well, which uh, are all a little bit unknown and I think starting to maybe nip at some business and consumer sentiment. What do you believe will be the commentary on increased costs? Those might be just logistics costs domestically, but also input costs from products sourced overseas. Great point. I, I don't think there's any question that that will, beginning in the third quarter, uh, become a margin issue for most companies. Thank goodness uh, that we're going to see uh, what we think is strong top-line results and cost containment in the following areas, specific input cost, especially where uh, some industrial metals are concerned, unfortunately probably offset by higher energy costs, and then, of course, as you mentioned, input cost is tied to the tariffs. Uh, we also think that labor costs are starting to creep into the equation and will become a second half of 2018 issue for earnings. Uh, not uh, dramatically so, but we think that the lows uh, in that particular cost structure uh, have already been seen. And then, of course, we'll have to factor in interest rates as well. So we do think that trade costs uh, will be part of the commentary. And I think that that's a little bit of an open-ended conversation some companies being impacted more than others. Well, I want to follow up on what you had to say about interest rates there, because right now, if you want to lend your money to the U.S. government, you're only going to get 2.93% as a return. Does that make sense in the environment that you've just described? Um, you know, we, we that's a great question. It's probably one of the key questions for the capital markets as we hit the second half of this year and into 2019. And here's the reason why. We think that growth is probably going to probably accelerate, call it close to 4% uh, in the second quarter. And importantly, we do see inflation on the rise. So we do think that the Fed is going to have to be responsive uh, to that type of dynamic uh, as we move into 2018 second half. Uh, whether it's uh, two additional increases or three, we'll have to see. You have the offset, of course, to probably some slowing growth because of trade tensions, but we do think the Fed is going to need to be responsive. They have indicated, Pim, as you're aware, that they may let inflation run a little bit hot this time. So uh, we think that there's no real surprises and that any moves by the Fed will be well telegraphed. We're speaking with Jim Russell. He is Principal Portfolio Manager Ball and Gainer based in Cincinnati. Jim, what's the strategy then for stock selection? Is it looking for dividend growth? Is it looking for value uh, we are a dividend growth, equity income growth shop here in Cincinnati at Ball & Gainer, and so we focus almost exclusively on equity uh, ideas on an individual stock-by-stock -stock, uh, level to grow the income year over year. And what we're seeing this year is an exceptionally strong uh, flow of dividend announcements with many companies 
increasing their dividends probably twice this year. We're seeing a weighted average dividend growth over 2017, mid-year 2018 versus 17, of a little over 12%. So we, uh, anything in the double digits is considered to be pretty strong. Yes, part of it is tax reform, and yes, part of it is uh, improving macro. So we'll have to see if those uh, trends are sustained, and we think that they probably will come off that double-digit level. But uh, we are seeing very strong trends in terms of dividend increases this year. What specific industry groups should we focus on when you talk about dividend growth? Because I'm looking at the 12, uh, the, uh, the 12-month dividend yield on S&P 500 stocks, 1.85%. That's the current yield. That's correct. Uh, in terms of the dividend growth, we think that most of it will be coming from the following three areas of the market. Banks, and we, we have already seen some specific announcements following CCAR literally last week from the banks. Very strong double-digit growth, some as high as 40 percent, uh, 50 percent, and again, with maybe a second increase uh, likely uh, in the second half this year from some specific franchises. Technology companies are also a source of very strong dividend growth. Not all technologies pay a dividend, uh, uh, but uh, the more mature-type companies do, and we're seeing very strong cash flows there, and we like selected healthcare era, uh, companies as well for dividend growth. And, and just finally, uh, any competition for corporate paper? I mean, I know that's not stocks, but, I mean, do you find people asking you about the corporate bonds? Uh, we do have a high amount of interest. As you mentioned just a minute ago, uh, government treasuries do not offer all that high of a yield initially, and certainly no increase in that, in that uh, income flow. We like the corporates a bit better. Thanks very much for being with us in the drive to the close. Jim Russell, Principal, Portfolio Manager, Ball & Gainer, helping to manage more than $23 billion of customer assets based in Cincinnati. I'm too high, too high, but into the sky. Are rates too high? Let's find out from Craig Torres. He is our Federal Reserve and U.S. economy reporter for Bloomberg News. He's joining us from our Bloomberg 991 studios in Washington, D.C. And of course, you can follow Craig on Twitter at C. Torres Reporter. Also, from Dallas, we've got Danielle DiMartino Booth, chief executive of Quill Intelligence, former advisor to the Dallas Federal Reserve. And you can follow Danielle at DiMartino Booth on Twitter. Craig Torres, what did we learn from the Federal Reserve's semiannual monetary policy report to Congress? Gradual, gradual, gradual. They're gonna <laughs> <laughs> three G's. There. He yeah, they're he not... even said it gradually. That was very good. You, <laughs> yeah. you said it gradually. <laughs> so uh, you know, steady as she goes, keep raising gradually. But I mean, come uh, on, wait, wait, Craig. Yeah. Would they ever do? Would they ever say anything else? Well, I think there's a message here, which is, uh, you know, we're being hit. the The subtext is we're being hit by a lot of uncertainties. Uh, we've got this big fiscal policy. What's that going to do? You probably saw the Powell uh, interview yesterday. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Trade and tariffs, I don't know. We're going to have to wait and see. So <clears throat> if you don't know, you go slow. That's kind of what's going on here. Danielle, based on your experience at the Federal Reserve, is this boilerplate response to current events 
because it always seems that we don't know and they're always going to be uncertainties. And are they taking the trade war and the fiscal stimulus and the budget deficit? Are they just taking that in stride? Are they missing something? You know, I don't think that it's in Jay Powell's character to take it in stride. One of the things that did come out of the big interview that he did is that he really is concerned about uh, about the trade war and about the potential for tariffs to trickle through to consumer prices. Uh, I, I just read an interesting report from Pantheon Macro that said that the newly proposed tariffs, if they were pushed through, would make up 6 percent of the core CPI. So the 10 percent increase in tax, if this happens, would be a six-tenths increase in core CPI. So I think that Powell was a little bit more open in his interview than what the, the, the policy report that we saw uh, released to Congress today was. Craig Torres, do you buy that? Do you believe that the increase or acceleration in inflation is something that is being talked about but not necessarily written about by the Federal Reserve? Well, like, I mean, they seem very uh, – <clears throat> what's the word? Um, at Gradual. Peace. Oh, no, at <laughs> peace with inflation, at peace with inflation, though the unemployment rate continues to tick lower – Wages are moving higher slowly, uh, but, you know, they don't seem to be worried. So, I mean, if Danielle says this could affect the CPI, this is this is what I think is happening is you don't you don't jump ahead till you see something. But that's the risk. They could be startled by some effect here that they haven't, you know, been able to forecast. Craig, that sounds sort of like the cover of Mad Magazine. You know what? Me worry. <laughs> Come on. A little, a little. I mean, I mean, anybody that purchases gasoline or anybody that pays for education on any level or tries to buy something, don't you notice that there is an acceleration in inflation? Danielle, do you believe that to be true or am I just living in a parallel universe? I don't think you're living in a parallel universe. And I think that if you asked your average man or woman on the street that they would tell you that they're certainly feeling it. Companies are definitely feeling it. Um, but but it, 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 there was a little a little bit of a nuance to me, and that's that in the actual in the, in the actual report that was released this morning, they did say that inflation was running above their. Of course, they had to use the word asymm, uh, Excuse me, they, they had to use the word symmetric, but they did give the nod to the fact that inflation is already running above their target. So I don't I, I don't know how how complacent the Fed is. Um, about inflation going forward. They, they fully expect for the energy prices to be transitory, and they said that. But again, if there are other sources that are more than offsetting, dot, 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 what me worry? Craig Torres, is this all consistent with a Treasury market where you have the 10-year yield at 2.82%? Probably not. So... That's the thing. I mean, I don't know what to think about the Treasury market. I don't know if the Fed knows what to think. We have some policymakers like uh, Rafael Bostic today saying, I don't want to invert the yield curve. But there are many, many reasons and forces about why long-term interest rates are low. I don't think it's well understood, and I don't think the majority of Fed officials are taking a lot of policy signal from, from the curve. Even Jim Bullard? Well, there are some who are, right? And he's one of them. But there are many who don't, including, you know, I think Fed staff. Danielle, if I could jump in here for a minute, uh, Powell did actually speak to the specter of stagflation in his interview. 
And he said he understood why short rates were up, but he said he could not get his arms around why long rates were down unless they were flagging, unless unless the both of the ends of the curve were flagging rising inflation and slowing growth. And he said that that would be very problematic. So, I mean, I, I really do think that, it, that, um, that, that Fed officials, uh, Philadelphia's Patrick Harker yesterday said the same exact thing. He said, you cannot ignore the yield curve. Um, so I, I do think they're paying attention to it. Go ahead. Uh, give you 10 seconds, Craig. Okay. I think that comment was made in the context of tariffs raising prices and slowing growth. Powell mentioned it as a hypothetical. Um, Yeah. Well, we'll have to find out what he says uh, next week. Uh, Jerome Powell, chairman of the Federal Reserve, uh, he'll be speaking uh, with Congress about that. Craig Torres, thanks very much. Our Federal Reserve U.S. economy reporter, Bloomberg News, Daniel DiMartino Booth of Quill Intelligence. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.